In contrast to the conventional wisdom, judge not lest ye be judged, Ayn Rand thought that we should never fail to pronounce moral judgment. But there's a lot of confusion among her readers about what this means and about why moral judgment is actually necessary. Uh, also why and how this relates to the rest of her philosophy. As it turns out, her fiction and her nonfiction philosophical work both shed a lot of light on the meaning and the importance of moral judgment. And today we're going to explore uh, the philosophical roots, the implications and the applications of this very provocative view of Rand's. Welcome to New Idea Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to discuss this topic, Ayn Rand on the necessity of moral judgment. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, senior fellow, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. So uh, before we get started, I thought one thing we should tell people in advance is since this is a topic that there's a lot of confusion about among fans of Ayn Rand, uh, we're definitely interested in answering your questions about it. And we'd encourage you, if you have them already, to just submit them as soon as you get them. You don't have to wait until the end. Uh, we might be able to answer some in real time as they bear on the topics that we're discussing. So please go ahead. Uh, you can use the Super Chat function uh, on YouTube or through Zoom to submit questions. And we'll remind you about that periodically uh, over the course of the talk today. So, but let's let's start by putting on the table what is so provocative and even controversial about Ayn Rand's view on this subject. She's she's a real absolutist about the importance of moral judgment. And just to illustrate this, I uh, thought we'd put a couple of quotes on screen of some of the things that she says about this in various places in her work, both fiction and nonfiction. So in Galt's speech, the climactic radio speech in Atlas Shrugged, in the section of the speech on virtue, and in particular on the virtue of justice, she says, or she has him say, justice is the recognition of the fact that you must judge all men as conscientiously as you judge inanimate objects, that every man must be judged for what he is and treated accordingly. And then in a nonfiction essay, of hers called How Does One Lead a Rational Life in an Irrational Society? This is an essay that appears in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. She says and italicizes in the article, one must never fail to pronounce moral judgment. So Ankar, it's a very controversial view, uh, one that's uh, I think a lot of people have questions about it. What makes it so controversial? Well, one is that she's taking head on the a sane and kind of maxima or advice given by the judo christian ethics so you've heard in one form or another the idea that don't judge lest you be judged and she viewed this as a not um an expression of goodwill or benevolence towards other people but a total abdication of the of what you're what you should be doing if you're taking your own life seriously and it's not i mean so she knows this is a religious slogan but it's not as though it's constrained now to religious people who only say that many people say that uh the way to proceed in life the way to get along with other people don't judge them and they won't judge you for ayn rand this is a license to evil 
it's you it's you won't look at other people and say that i think things you're doing are wrong mistaken evil on the hope that they'll accord you that same um uh, in quotes privilege they won't call out spot um take any notice of or any objection to things that you are doing wrong mistaken evil so it's she, one of the ways that she put it it's like you're signing a blank check where it's i won't talk about the things that you're doing wrong you don't talk about the things that i'm doing wrong and that that is a way to get along in life but all it does is for the people who are good you overlook the fact that they're good you don't judge them you don't pronounce judgment you don't say that they're good you don't praise them so, and for the people who are evil, you again, you don't identify it. So who does that help and who does that hurt? It helps the people who aren't good and it hurts the people who are good. So it's not just she thought, oh, this idea or slogan is a little mistaken, incorrect. It's like radically wrong. The proper attitude, as you put up, is one must never fail to pronounce moral judgment. The only people who gain by a failure to pronounce moral judgment are the people who you would say, you're doing something wrong, you're doing something immoral, you're doing something evil. And the people who lose are the people who are doing good things. So the it's common, I think, to think of judge not lest ye be judged as live and let live, and they're not the same idea at all. That you can, that there is a perspective of live and let live if you're in the political arena, that it's sort of a common sense, colloquial way of putting it. You've got rights. They've got rights. Um, they should respect your rights. You should respect them. Let them do within the sphere of their rights what they want. If they're doing something that you think is stupid, irrational, even evil, you can leave them alone and go your separate way. But in that case, you're judging them. You're judging, look, I think what you're doing, yes, it's within your right to do it, but I think either what you're saying is it takes freedom of speech. It's You can simultaneously say, yeah, you've got the right to say that, and I think what you're saying is irrational, and I'm going to either avoid it or I'm going to argue against you. So, so I think some of the reason people accept, yeah, like, isn't this a good idea, is they equate it with live and let live. It's not the same thing at all. And it's important to distinguish those two ideas. And what you just described is uh, the 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 difference between the issue of moral judgment and, in effect, uh, respecting political liberty. Those the difference between those two is often erased by means of this concept of tolerance. We I think the the term was originally used to describe the respect for rights that that you just described, but it's. It's packaged together with this kind of uh, agnosticism about judgment. And you see that not just in the religious culture, but in a secular culture too, right? Yeah, definitely. You see the, the claim that what the life should be about tolerating things is, um, as you said, there was a political use of the idea of toleration that was, I think, a pro it's part of the progression towards getting a full and proper conception of freedom. In the end, even I think political toleration, it's not the way to express the idea, but I'm sympathetic to when that they started thinking of it like that, that the government should tolerate, for instance, other religions, 
It's, and this is even in the context still when there was an established religion, but we don't need to stamp out every other religion. The that's not the government's function to do that. Uh, and it should tolerate other religions. That's in the sphere of coercion. And there's a, 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 there's a meaning to that. The proper thing is that government is not in the business of tolerating ideas um, and saying some are tolerable, others aren't. It's not in the business of policing ideas. That's when you got to the American conception, they no longer put it in terms of toleration because it's not a government's business to decide what it will tolerate in the sphere of ideas and what it won't. But the earlier and English conception is put more in terms of toleration. But that is not the same thing that in your private life, you should tolerate what you think is wrong, mistaken, evil. It's, uh, it's exactly the opposite, that you should live your life trying to navigate it from figuring out what's good, what's bad, what's evil, what isn't, pursuing the one and avoiding the other, and sometimes arguing against and combating the other. So, but that is part of this, that there's this package deal that, oh, so are you saying we should be intolerant? No, not at a political level. You should respect people's rights, but at a moral level, you should not tolerate evil. And it's, it's, it's probably noteworthy that there are, there are fans of Ayn Rand who, even though they uh, sympathize with a lot of her philosophy, they, it, it seems to me at least, go in for the spirit of this, this modern view of toleration and, and think that because that if you hold a philosophy of reason, that that demands a kind of restraint from judgment, I mean, especially if we're talking about judging other people's ideas. And that's something we'll talk more about later in the episode, I think. But uh, it, that that's a data point that helps show that how pervasive uh, this this uh, idea, this this practice is in our culture. And um, you can have some so, sympathy for that. I was going to say. So we've touched on one side of the religious um viewpoint particularly the judeo-christian viewpoint of judge not lest ye be judged but the other side of it is if you think of religion christianity through its history the idea that it's not judgmental as it would be put today nobody can read christian history and think oh yeah it's, they don't judge anybody there's no such thing as heretics sinners there's no such thing as a, like a almost like an obsessive preoccupation with sin and even the manufacture of sin. You're a witch, we're gonna burn you and da, da, da. And the, so it's simultaneous. What you have is the leaders, spokesmen, the people who hold the power in the religion, they will pronounce judgment and irrational judgment like take original sin you're born a sin no matter if you didn't do anything you didn't make any bad choice you're a sinner and that like they'll pound that into the the um followers of the christian religion that's like it's hard to get more irrational form of judgment than that no matter what you do you're a sinner and even if you didn't do anything you're still a sinner it's that was simultaneous well who are you to judge so and why is it simultaneously both? It 
gives them a blank check on uttering irrational judgments. And then if you're to judge them, like, who are you to judge? Aren't you a sinner? Who, um, are you going to cast the first stone? Are you without sin? And it's those together that really make it that this whole thing of judgment seems so irrational that maybe the solution is don't judge. And Ayn Rand's view is, no, that's not a solution. That's just succumbing to um, th this whole irrational view and taking the opposite uh, but uh, the, the opposite side of the same coin. It seems both sides of that coin fail to appreciate what judgment is for and what its basis uh, needs to be. And those are the two things that we want to talk about today, about what, what it's for and what its basis has to be. So let's talk about the first. And, and this is, I think, definitely related to uh, what you were just talking about, about how you can sympathize with the antipathy people have to judgment because uh, so much of what they've dealt with, especially in uh, religious morality, it looks like it's arbitrary and irrational and dogmatic. Uh, so it has this bad reputation. Uh, and what's the content of that kind of judgment usually? Well, it's judging people for not, uh, for, for failing to live up to the strictures of Judeo-Christian morality, which usually means failing to live up to the morality of self-sacrifice, selflessness, altruism, and it, it, you know, to the extent that people are living, they can't really abide by that view consistently. And so it's, it, it makes sense why they would come to resent uh, being judged for pursuing their happiness to the extent that they do. Uh, and yet, uh, and so when you hear someone like Ayn Rand say, you need to judge all the time, or you need to never fail to pronounce judgment, people hear that and I think they 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 hear it or read it through the lens of the approach to morality that they're most used to, which is the, the morality of self-sacrifice. But Ankar, uh, Ayn Rand obviously has a different idea of what morality is even about in the first place, and that has implications for what she thinks moral judgment is for. Could you say more about that? Yes, and, and it came up in the first of the two quotes from Ayn Rand that you put up. So the quote from Atlas Shrugged that the character John Galt is making in his radio broadcast, that it's the wider phenomenon is the need for judgment. So we're talking here particularly about moral judgment, but moral moral is a qualifier. And more broadly, what objectivism says and what Ayn Rand is telling you is that if you take your life seriously, if you take the pursuit of your own happiness seriously, that means taking the pursuit of values seriously, that what you have to achieve in life are values, and what you have to avoid are the things that interfere with, threaten, undermine, destroy your pursuit of values. So for Ayn Rand, moral judgment is, there's distinctive aspects to it, but I think what she says that if you're leading a rational moral life, and for her, that means you're pursuing your own happiness, your own selfish values, you look at the whole world from a value perspective, what advances my values and what threatens my values. So judgment, it's not, okay, once in a while, you stop to make a judgment or something. All of life is making a judgment about this is good, this is bad. And it's it, whether you're at work, recreation, you're on a hike and you're uh, say you're in Yellowstone Park 
and you see movement up ahead. If it's a deer, you reach for your camera. If it's a bear, you reach for bear mace. Like once valuable and something you're pursuing, one you're trying to avoid. And it's like, that's just, if you're taking your life seriously, that's just a normal part of life. Everything's value-laden. And then it's when you get to your interactions and dealings with human beings, nothing changes. If anything, the, the stakes are heightened because people can be of enormous benefit to you. Like a deer is nice to take a photo of, and if you're hunting or something, you might for food. So, but your relationships with people that they go well can make like a tremendous positive impact on your life from friends and lovers to business partners and so on. And if you misjudge that, and you have relationships with people who are actually undermining your values, who are um, uh, uh, sort of suck the energy out of life for you, then it's like enormous negative in your life. So of all the realms in which you want to judge and try to figure out, okay, what's good and what's bad, what's pro my values, what's against my values, the whole human realm is the I mean, a, a paradigm of where it's like it's crucially important to do this. And so it's like in that broader context, I think that Ayn Rand's thinking about justice and moral judgment. And then we could say a little bit about what makes moral judgment distinctive, but I, I think it's important to put it into like, it's about the pursuit of values and you have to judge if you're interested in values. So that makes a lot of sense to me and it, it it helps explain, I think, what Ayn Rand thinks moral judgment is necessary for. Uh, though the way that you explained it made it sound like the life is simply filled with blacks and whites, that there's good people you want to uh, be with and evil people you want to get away from. But there are obviously people who are mixed and who are gray. And uh, I wonder what you think of the following. It strikes me that in in those kinds of cases, uh, moral judgment is as important, if if uh, not more important, than in the other cases, because it's 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 precisely when you're dealing with people who are mixed, where you need to put even more work into judging. Uh, well, what's good about them? What's bad about them? In order to negotiate your relationship with them, which take, which is, which is harder to do because you, you, you want to work with them to the extent that they're good and avoid them to the extent that they're no good. And there's a, there's a real, there's a lot of intellectual work that's needed there. Do, do you agree with that? I agree from a certain perspective. So I don't think it's more important, but there are elements that are more difficult in it. So I think the most important is to figure out who are the truly um, irreplaceable people in your life, and if not irreplaceable, like close to irreplaceable, and it's why and to pursue that. But then there are mixed people as well, and you're trying to, mixed means you think there's some element of good in them, some element of bad. If you're going to interact with them, you want to interact with the elements that are good and try to avoid as much as possible the elements are bad. And to figure that out is difficult often, I think. And, and but it's the principles of good and evil that enable you to do that. So it's from one perspective, I think it's harder, but from another perspective, the most important thing is to figure out what is like the highest values in your life in terms of your interactions with other people. Yeah, so one thing I wanted to 
bring up at this point was uh, how you see this issue at work in Ayn Rand's fiction, because I, I think some people think maybe this is this is just some doctrine coming out of uh, a few of her non nonfiction essays, maybe parts of Galt's speech. But if you look at something like Atlas Shrugged and you look at the drama of Atlas Shrugged, the conflicts that the characters are facing, uh, especially Reardon and Dagny, their their biggest dramatic conflicts are are conflicts with uh, you know, in their own premises, in their own thinking about uh, about how they deal with the world, and especially how they deal with other people. And someone like Reardon is someone who, uh, through you know, early, the early part of the story, is being mistreated by his family. He, they are a burden on him. They are sucking the life out of him, as as you put it, and he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think too much. I, they don't deserve it. And the drama for him is coming to realize that he's been giving them this benefit of the doubt when they didn't deserve it. And it's it's really only when he finally judges them for who they are, which is these uh, basically hate, you know, hateful people who are sucking the life out of him. It's only when he does that, that he's able to move on uh, through the story and, and, and motivate himself to go on strike and, and liberate himself from so many of these other burdens. Um, do, do you think that's a fair read on on Reardon? And uh, is there anything else about the fiction you, you'd like to well, add? It, it's, yeah, it, it's crucial to all of Atlas that this is going on. As you say, the, the story centers from the reader's perspective, at least, like who you get to know the most, I think, and see the whole progression of their their character arc in the story is is Dagny in Reardon. And you say that he's giving them the benefit of the doubt and too much, but it's the too much is interesting, the elements of what's happening. And one element is, and this is a common, I think this is a common phenomenon in life. It's part of the reason you need to understand both good and evil. He can't fathom that they really are motivated deep down by hatred. And so when he's giving them the benefit of the doubt, he once in a while gets to, well, like maybe it's this, but they can't be that monstrous. Nobody's that monstrous to actually like resent me for my success. And the fact that I'm becoming happier is a threat to them. It's, that like he senses at some points, but he can't fully put either like what their view is into words till later in the story. And he can't believe it that someone could descend into to make this much of a messes to to light a word for their in, of their soul and character to, to have thrown it away and to make themselves into haters. It doesn't have a reality to him. And part of the reason to understand evil is to understand, well, there is such a phenomenon in these people and his wife, Lillian, is particularly bad. And it's, I think part of the story is there are people like this in the world. It's not like this is the majority of people, but there are people. And when you're thinking about mixed people, it's that they sometimes have an element of this kind of hatred. It's not for Lillian, it's kind of all consuming motivation. For other people, it's motivation that surfaces once in a while, and they have some better elements too. But that it's you have to understand this, and that it's hard to understand it, 
and benefit of the doubt, you will often like, and and you get this from Raven, like, I don't understand it, and I can't condemn without understanding. Um, and that, and you see similar things in regard to Dagny, and you see differences about different kind of people. I think Dagny understands Hank's family much better than Reardon does. But say the interaction with Dr. Stadler, Reardon's, he's much earlier. No, this guy's not mixed. You might think like he still does work at state science institutes, but this is not a mixed, like he's way, maybe he was at some point a mixed, but he's way beyond that. And Dagny's more like, well, but maybe, and I still want to deal with him. And so, and like, this is part highlights just the difficulty of this judgment, but the importance of this judgment as well. There's one last uh, point under the heading of uh, why moral judgment is necessary for practically selfish reasons. I thought I should step outside of the, the fiction for a moment and, and look at the world around us. And, and one place where I think you see this really more than any other place is foreign policy. And if you just look at what's happening today with what we're dealing with, with Russia and, and Ukraine and Putin, that that it's it's several decades now of of basically agnosticism or tolerance or uh, uh, failure to judge uh, various trends in Russian politics that have that have led us to this. And you can tell a similar story about other cases in foreign policy. Uh, uh, Islamic totalitarianism in the Muslim world, for instance, where it's been a failure on the part of the West to judge these trends that has that has empowered these evil people who are are haters of the same type that you were talking about, gives them the power then to stand up and pose a, a, a significant threat to uh, to to the West, which I think could have been avoided if we had been more judgmental uh, in in the past. Do you have uh, any thoughts on that issue? One of the reasons that foreign policy really highlights this is because it's for any reasonable person, it's unequivocal that there are evil regimes, not just mixed. And it's like, how bad is it? Someone like uh, Putin and the Russian regi regime or North Korea or Venezuela, it's clearly that and you brought up the Islamic totalitarians, like the leaders of Iran in that regime. It's clearly this, we're dealing with evil, that this these are people motivated by destruction. They're destroying their own citizens' lives. And with Putin in Ukraine is now destroying the lives of citizens in other uh, relatively peaceful places. So it's what's obvious is you're dealing with evil. And then that there's so much of this well maybe if we didn't call it evil then we'd be able to get along so that, that's what the united nations is basically let's have all kinds of regimes including communist china soviet russia and so on, and let's try to hash things out yeah we're not going to say that they're evil um though everybody knows it or any rational person knows it and it's just a whitewashing of those regimes. So I think the reason it stands out so starkly in foreign policy is it's clear that not every country, obviously, there are mixed countries, but there are countries and regimes that are just out and out that their essence is evil. Okay, so the reason that we need moral 
judgment, according to Ayn Rand, is because it, it helps us to pursue values in the world. It helps us to avoid disvalues and, and, and haters and destroyers. Uh, that's what it's for. Now, let's talk a little more about its, its basis. Uh, we said before that moral judgment had a bad reputation in part because of the kind of purpose people thought that morality had, which was to judge people for being um, selfish and that that's bad in that view. Uh, another reason why moral judgment has a bad reputation is, and we've touched on this somewhat already, is that is that to the extent that most people have experienced it, they've experienced it as as coming in an irrational, dogmatic form where people are quick to judge, where they judge without basis. And so, Ankar, what's what's Ayn Rand's view about that form of judgment and 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 what the basis for moral judgment needs to be? what she stresses or one of the things she stresses and i think it's a good analogy to use is that you should be like a judge in a proper court of law that you want to reach a judgment but you want to reach the correct judgment so you have to be meticulously focused on what are the actual facts what evidence is being do i have can I find if, if this is an important thing that I need to make a judgment about this person or this person's actions? Or what is the evidence? What evidence can I collect? How does this evidence integrate? Like when I start putting it together, what does it actually point to? Like what conclusion is supported or conclusions, plural, are supported by the evidence? And one of the mistakes uh, in terms of thinking of what Ayn Rand's saying when she says that you have to judge, people hold it as you have to reach a final judgment on like in 30 minutes or something like that. And that's not the advice that's being given. And this, again, I think is why thinking of a judge in a courtroom, there are trials that last for months. There are uh, often in the civil arena, complex business litigation figuring out like if it was there a breach of contract in what way what mitigating step steps did the other side take and so it can it's very complex and it's not like a judge listening for the first month or two months of the trial is not making judgments and then like just the end verdict is a judgment it's all the while he's thinking what is the evidence is this witness credible um, what what does this contract actually say? Is the interpretation they were putting on it is that a reasonable interpretation given what is in the contract, or do I think they started already here at this stage, started to proceed unreasonably, and so and he's thinking of that all, and he's making judgments, and he's thinking of how does this all interconnect until to make what is the prime proper final judgment? Was there a breach of contract? What were the damages, and so on? And that's what when she says that one should judge. It's to go through that process, which is a process of many smaller judgments, which will may culminate then in, like I've reached a conclusion here. And for, for certainly for important matters, you want to reach a conclusive judgment, but that's a process. And it's a process that has to be guided by the actual evidence and a real commitment to uncovering the evidence. And that's what she's in terms of judgment as a way of life, that's the way of life that she's recommending. So you said that 
when the when the judge is conducting the trial, even before he makes the final judgment, that throughout that process he's judging. And I wonder if uh, part of the reason you say that would help answer this question that we got from YouTube. Someone asked, "What if you don't think you have enough information to pronounce judgment?" And what I would say, and tell me what you think of this, Ankar, is that well, there's a there, it's true that if you don't have enough information, you can't pronounce final judgment, but you can pronounce, uh, I guess, uh, uh, penultimate or intermediate judgment. And in that kind of case, the, the form that the judgment takes, something like what that judge in that trial must be doing all along, is judging levels of probability and judging what's possible and what's not possible. And, and, and just the idea that someone, uh, when someone says the conclusion is uncertain to me, that that itself is a judgment that you're when you're identifying the the in effect the epistemic status of the various claims in play that that's a judgment too and so the the injunction to always judge says that when you're uncertain that's that's the way you should conclude until you until you reach certainty is that do you think that's right yeah i think that's right and if you go back to the fiction and think of some of ayn rand's heroes in regard to that and take reardon again it's it's he gives his family the benefit of the doubt and he's not ready to reach a final verdict on them because he can't figure them out like he it doesn't make sense to him what's happening but he's judging and he's trying to figure it out and that's what the advice is so it's he nor he doesn't think of his family either as just they're yeah, they, these nice, innocent people, like part of why he's driven to figure it out is on the one hand, there, it seems like there's something good about them. That's how I've treated them. I married Lillian after all. And on the other hand, there's something seems really off about them. And he's trying to figure it out. And you see him marshalling evidence, reaching a certain conclusion and thinking, no, that can't be right. And so, and that's the process of judging. And now in the book, he reaches a final perspective on the family and decides his family members, immediate family members, they're corrupt. But it's you see a process that has fits and starts. He makes some mistakes and so on. But I would not put it as he's not judging. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Reardon here anyway, again, to bring things back to how Ayn Rand thinks about this in the fiction. And it strikes me that, yeah, even though he's judging uh, he, and he's he's doing his best to gather the evidence, he's still making a, a mistake in his judgment. And and it's kind of an innocent version of a uh, of a type of mistake that a lot of other people make in a in a not very innocent way when they fail to judge. And he he's pretty clear about the importance of not judging, especially not condemning without evidence. But there's a there's a corollary, which is you should also not fail to judge when the evidence warrants it. And he doesn't think that the evidence warrants judging his family. The reason he doesn't think it warrants it is because whenever they they do these terrible or say these terrible things to him, he, as you as you mentioned earlier, has a hard time imagining, has a hard time understanding how someone could really be motivated by the kind of malice they appear to be motivated by. And so he, 
the, the form in which he gives them the benefit of the doubt is to entertain these possible explanations that would that would render them innocent. Like they've just been suffering so much with their life that they're 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 twisted uh, to say these things, or really maybe Lillian uh, just uh, feels hurt by being ignored by Reardon, and she just loves him so much that's why she she says these things. Um, but what's happening here, even though in Reardon it's in a kind of innocent form, is he's positing these psychological explanations that would get them off the hook. But he doesn't really have the evidence for these, these alternative psychological explanations. And it's something that Ayn Rand herself wrote about in an, in an essay, The Psychology of Psychologizing. She uses Reardon as an example of someone who does an innocent version of this, because she thinks there's a lot of people who do it in a not very innocent way. Who, who posit these kind of psychological excuses for other people to get them off the hook. And what she insists is that uh, they, they should actually, you should only judge people on the basis of their actions, their statements, and their conscious convictions. And if, you, if, if, if that's what you have as the basis for judgment, and if you think more carefully about Lillian, which Reardon eventually does, you realize, wait, there's not actually anything in her favor here. That none of those categories, in 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 none of those categories, do you actually see evidence that she that she actually loves him? Uh, and when you realize that, you realize you that's why you've been giving the the benefit of the doubt without any substantiation. And and he when he realizes that, he he changes his mind and he he condemns her and he gets you know he gets out of that arrangement. Um, do you, do you want to add anything more on, on the issue of the, the role of psychology in, in judging other people? Not on the role of psychology, but just on the interplay of the fiction and the nonfiction, that there's a lot you can learn from the fiction about what Ayn Rand thinks about philosophy and ideas and how ideas play out. But you have to remember they're in a dramatized form they're in a heightened form lillian is a particularly despicable character but part of the essay you brought up the psychology of psychologizing is ayn Rand clearly thinks this is a real phenomena that this happens in actual life and you and the that essay is about how it more often happens in actual life of which the lillian uh rear and dynamic is a heightened dramatized form of the same thing so it's not like she thinks that well everybody's lillian but nevertheless there is that kind of dynamic she thinks that plays out in a in the same way but in a more kind of diluted way like this is the essence of lillian's character um that it that you have that dynamics doesn't mean it has to be the essence of their relationship which it is for reardon and lillian so it's interesting to think the often when people are trying to understand Ayn Rand's ideas, they don't pay enough attention to the fiction. And I think you can't fully understand her views if you don't see the interrelation between the two. And one of the things that Reardon realizes at the end when he when he's judging Lillian for what she is, is uh, that it's it's not just her uh, actions, but her statements and and what they reveal about her convictions. And he judges her as having some really evil convictions. Like she's anti-life, and she she resents him uh, for being good. Um, 
so I wanted to talk finally today about that that last issue of judging a person's conscious convictions, because this is one of the issues where there's, I think, the most confusion and controversy among fans of Ayn Rand, the idea that part of what you judge when you judge another person is their ideas. There are there are fans of Ayn Rand and, and, and people who, who've written on her philosophy who say that morality is mainly about judging a person's actions, that when you judge ideas, you're mainly judging whether they're true or they're false, uh, not primarily uh, whether they're good or evil. Uh, here, the most prominent person who's uh, said this is David Kelly, who runs a, an organization that's ostensibly about Ayn Rand, but this is, this is one of the big... Um, points of contention between us and that organization. And so Ankar, would you would you say more about uh, what does Ayn Rand think about judging the good or the evil of a, of a person based on their ideas and, and the judging of ideas as such as, as good or evil? It's helpful to take a wider context of the issue of moral judgment. So we talked a little bit earlier in the podcast that what Ayn Rand's advice is to judge, and that's not just morally judge thing, it's to judge, to figure out what's valuable, what isn't, to look at all of your life and all of reality from the perspective of what advances my values and what hinders them. And then moral judgment is judging people. Why do you need a separate uh, principle? And indeed, for Ayn Rand, it's a virtue, it's a virtue of justice is rationally judging other people. Why do you need a separate principle for it? It's because people are radically different than everything else that you deal with. They're radically different because they have the power of choice. And this is, and people understand that that when we're more, we're talking about moral judgment, it seems connected to choice. That's why they find something like original sin, unless they've been sort of bombarded with this in their upbringing. When a person hears about your original sin, and even like a child, if they haven't been brainwashed and told, yeah, this baby, it's a sinner. It hasn't done anything, hasn't lived yet. It hasn't made any choices, but it's full of sin. It's well, but isn't it should, doesn't it have to have made bad choices to be um, have done something wrong, morally wrong. So people understand that at a, at a common sense level, that when we're talking to judging of people, one of the things you have to judge is the choices they're making. And that's because they have the power of choice. Other things don't. And Ayn Rand's view was, yes, you do have to choose other people. They do have the power of choice. So there's various considerations that enter into that kind of judgment that don't enter into if you're judging, like, is this a good car to buy? Or even the example I brought up is like, should you run from a bear or should you just take some photos and let it approach you? Um, it's not an issue that you're judging what choices is it going to make but that's what you have to think about in regard to other people and and indeed you're judging yourself and other people it's you're looking at the choices they make and Ayn Rand's view of the power of choice is the fundamental power you have is the power over your own mind and your own thinking or lack thereof the way she often put it is it's the choice to think or not so the idea that um, the, the knowledge, conclusions, identifications you make, so the concepts you hold, the ideas you accept, 
the theories you think are true and, and then are acting on and urging other people to act on. The idea that that's not subject to judgment when that's the root of your power of choice, it's, um, there's just, it's impossible that that's Ayn Rand's view. You might think her whole theory of free will is incorrect and you don't have a choice to think or not, but if you're taking seriously what objectivism says, it says you have this power. So if anything's going to be subject to moral judgment, it's the what you do with this power to think or not. And if the, that has to play out in the cognitive arena or in terms of ideas, and it's just your, I mean, at a certain level, it's a high school level mistake to think, oh, what well, no, what objectivism really says and what Ayn Rand says is you judge actions, but you can't judge a person's ideas. Um, and like, where do their ideas come from? From their thinking or lack thereof. So it's, um, it, it has created confusion, but from another perspective, there's no plausibility that this could be an accurate account of what Ayn Rand's theory is. Yeah, and related to that, if you, if you look at Atlas Shrugged, especially at Galt's speech, uh, I mean, he is, he is not just giving a dispassionate uh, philosophical analysis of the truth or falsehood of various ideas. There's a whole section in the second half where he singles out for condemnation all of the irrational ideas that have brought the world to the state that it's in. He says that original sin is evil. He says mysticism is evil. He says egalitarianism is the, is the uh, I can't remember, the black mass of the worship of death. And this is not just uh, dispassionate analysis. This is, this is condemnation. Uh, now, Ankar, one of the things I think that gives people pause about this idea is, uh, and, and they may even grant, okay, yes, of course, uh, Ayn Rand thinks that the basic control that we have is over our minds and the basic evil that we can commit is, is to evade reality. And okay, uh, some ideas might be the product of that kind of evasion, which would make them a sign of evil. But innocent error is also something that's possible. Can't people adopt irrational ideas, ideas that are in fact irrational, maybe they don't realize it. And so is you know should shouldn't we shouldn't we maybe be uh, uh, give more benefit of the doubt be more tolerant given the understanding of that possibility? What would you what would you say in response to that? It is a possibility, but the solution is not to be more tolerant uh, or to give people the benefit of the doubt when they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. It's just to be aware of the fact. It is true that irrational ideas can be accepted by some people in an innocent way but you then have to specify what does that mean what does that look like what are innocent ways and what are not innocent ways in which an idea even if you're not the originator of the idea that you could hold it and that you could look at the person and think yeah this even though I think the idea, the originator of this idea, the people pushing this, what they're doing is evil, it's irrational, it's coming from the fact that they're not thinking. Nevertheless, I can understand why someone picks up this idea for a period of time, maybe, but, and then you have to fill in the details that, uh, 
I can th think of people, to, to take an example, I think of environmentalism as uh, an evil ideology. It's an ideology that is anti-capitalist, anti-progress, anti-industrial revolution, is the Ayn Rand's perspective on it was. It's, it's the anti-industrial revolution. And it's anti-man in the way. It, do, it doesn't think of man as he is and should be on a quest for survival. He has a particular means of survival. The way he survives is transforming the world. Uh, one of the ways Ayn Rand puts it in the image of his values, that he takes wilderness and he transforms it. And that that is something good. It's the essence of life, indeed that environmentalism, when you read its real theoreticians, they're at war with that fact. Um, and it's the, in praising and extolling that what we want is wilderness, what they're wiping out is the way that uh, human beings actually survive. So I have a very negative view, to say the least, about environmentalism at a theoretical level. And yet, I think there are people who absorb environmentalist ideas who are innocent and they think of it, yeah, I don't like pollution and they see, well, aren't they against pollution? So, and they think of it in a more, in a context that's more, um, well, aren't we advancing human life? That's different than someone who works at Greenpeace and who is now devoting his life to this and you have to think, really, do you know enough about this that you you can devote your life to this? Is that still innocent? Um, that all these environmental groups were against nuclear power, which I think is one of the telltale signs that they're not pro-progress, they're not pro-human life, and it was all scaremongering about the threat of linking nuclear pants to nuclear bombs, even though a nuclear power plant can't explode. So it's that it like that's no longer innocent even if you're not the originator you're not the theoretician of this you become an activist who's pushing this i don't review view that as innocent at all so there's a lot of um further things that you have to think about when you're thinking about this person holds these ideas but the idea that th that whole realm is like not subject to judgment is um i mean on one level crazy but on a different perspective it's just there's no way that that is Ayn Rand's view of about how to look at people in life. So let me ask you one more question on this topic, and then we should get to some of the questions we've we've that have been submitted because there have been a lot of them. Um, one more reason I think why people are are reluctant to accept this point about how there can be evil ideas uh, and that that can you know people who accept them make them um, morally tainted and 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 that's I think there's an assumption that uh, there's only two categories uh, into which you can fall here uh, when you've accepted one of these ideas, that you're either totally innocent or you're as evil as uh, Lillian Reardon. And I think it helps to appreciate, well, there's a whole bunch of gradations in between that. And so like when I think of myself, for instance, uh, at, when I was younger, uh, I, you know, I, was, I was religious and uh, accepted a lot of religious ideas. And, yeah, to some extent, I think I can excuse myself for having been young and not really knowing what I was talking about. But I don't think that was totally the story. I think I think I was I was foolish and I think I was dishonest to some extent. And I think I was, you know, 
was engaging in wishful thinking, and I don't think that was good. I think that was a that was, that was a bad bad way for me to handle and manage my mind, and and that's a moral judgment that I'm now making of myself in the past. But okay, I've made that judgment, and it doesn't mean I'm consigned to uh, objectivist hell for all eternity, and that my soul is irredeemable. And uh, again, I think people people will they they read into these kinds of judgments again the kind of religious model of what it looks like to judge to think you know once you've done the wrong thing you're 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 worthless and you're 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 lost but uh, if to tie back to the beginning of our conversation if the reason that moral judgment is necessary is for practical selfish purposes then somebody who makes a judgment of themselves or of others uh that this is a, a dishonest idea that you're playing around with that's not necessarily uh, condemning you to the, the pit of Dante's hell. It's it's saying, hey, you've made a mistake. You've made the wrong choice. Here's some advice. Stop doing that. Make a better one and move in a better direction. Do you have any final thoughts on that issue? That, that's an important point you're raising. And the part of the reason it's important is that moral judgment on both sides of what's positive and what's negative, both about other people, but also about yourself. And you're bringing up an example about judging yourself, but it, it's you should have basically the same standards, judging yourself and judging other people as you're both volitional beings. It's negative, the point of negative judgment is not to um, uh, say that now you're tainted by sin and this is a taint you can never remove. You're now part of the damned. So the point is to identify it is stop doing it. Like it, it's it, you should view it as useful. Okay, I'm doing something here that's negative, and if it, that and if I come to think it's morally wrong, it's the reason to identify that is you have the power to stop doing it, and the earlier you identify it, the easier it is to stop doing it. So one of the things that is actually helpful about Ayn Rand and they put her as she's judgmental and so on, is that for a bunch of ideas that the culture treats as um, either innocuous or as great, she actually thinks, no, these ideas and the root of them and why they've come on the scene, why there's now theories pushing communism or environmentalism. So it's there's real evil here. And that, for someone who you're starting to get um, uh, attracted to it for some innocent reasons and for not so in innocent reasons, it's like she's telling you, what you're getting attracted to is really evil. And that's helpful for someone who's actually concerned with their life. It's really like it's not just it's, you're saying this is evil and it, it heightens the stakes, but it should heighten the stakes. And I think she's right about all these kinds of things. And it, it's uh, so it's it's both of these appointing. What she also does is there's a better way than say communism or environmentalism, but also these are evil. And it you have to look at what your life as I'm getting immersed in evil. That is helpful to a person who's actually concerned about his life and making it go well. And it's so much not this idea that it's oh now you're tainted by sin you're finished. Good. We've gotten a lot of questions submitted on this topic. And uh, before we dive into at least a few of them, I'll remind people that we'll be going on to Clubhouse right after. And so if we didn't get to your question, 
uh, in the main podcast, please join us on Clubhouse. You might we might be able to talk about it there. Even if uh, even if you're not there, we might still uh, answer it. So show up to hear what we have to say. But let's do at least a few. We got a question from Super Chat. Someone asked, "What is the difference in moral judgment between objectivism and?" intrinsicism, i.e. not everyone will make the same exact judgment on a given instance. Uh, I suspect to answer that, we're going to have to say a little bit about what intrinsicism is. But do you, do you want to take that one on, Ankar? Uh, okay. The, to put the positive, uh, what objectivism is urging in terms of moral judgment, more, more broadly about all judgment, is to proceed objectively. Indeed, she thinks of justice as an aspect of the wider principle of objectivity. And that is what you're trying to do is figure to identify and evaluate reality, whether it's like what car I want to buy, whether this animal is threatening to me or not, whether this person is good or evil um, or mixed. You're going by the actual evidence and you're processing that evidence by principles of logic, principles of proper thinking, the principles of objectivity. Um, and so there's a lot of things about what it means to process evidence to, that points to a conclusion and that you've reached a conclusion that is actually supported by the evidence. And that's a lengthy process. And so objectivity is about bringing your mind in alignment with reality, but it's a process and it's a complex process of, for which you have to make a lot of choices. And this is part of the reason, yes, two people starting with the same evidence and even trying to, they're both trying to figure out what is the correct judgment here. There's no guarantee they're gonna reach the same judgment. It's a process, it's a volitional process, it takes, um skill and ability to reach the truth and a person can be trying and he can fail in complex situations there's all kinds of things that different that the you might be weighing the evidence the relative weights of the evidence a little differently you might someone might take something as like this is a key piece of evidence and someone sees it as evidence but doesn't see it as it's a key piece of evidence and you reach different conclusions that's not to say that both conclusions are right, but this is a process and part of what it means to take it seriously is to take, it's not a robotic process. It's a process that for which there's a lot of choice and that you, uh, if you're really rational, your ability to think grows over time. Um, that it's like, I view myself now and versus 30 years ago, as there's many things that I can think better about because I've learned various things. So this is all what objectivism is emphasizing, and it takes it out of the sphere of what judgment is, is dogmatic pronouncement. It strikes me that there is, so you, you, you just answered that question by making a point about uh, uh, what's the uh, objectively proper way to judge someone? And I think you're addressing the question that was asked about objectivism versus intrinsicism by, in effect, saying uh, this other view uh, 
which is called intrinsicism, would, would maintain that you, you're only doing the right thing if you get the same answer in every case, the same one right answer is the intrinsically right answer or something like that. Uh, and I, it, it struck me that there's an analogous point to make, not about the way that you judge, but about the, the object that you're judging, which is uh, that when you're considering what other people do, that you can't treat their uh, uh, what's right or wrong for them in the same way uh, for every case either. That is to say, you know, consider somebody like uh, Reardon who's, who's uh, cheating on his wife uh, in effect. And um, he's, he, it's not intrinsically wrong to do, to have an affair with Dagny Taggart uh, or to have an affair with someone other than your wife. And this isn't, in the, in the respect of that, there are different reasons that people have for doing things like that, that it's it's in his case, he's been manipulated and lied to by his by his legal wife. Uh, he, she pretends to love him, but she doesn't really. And she drains everything out of him. Um, there are other cases where somebody could do the exact same actions, but for very different reasons where it would be it would be it would be totally wrong because they'd be uh, you know, trying to uh, fake reality and uh, are deluding themselves about what they're trying to do. And really, they did uh, have a loving relationship with their wife. There's other examples we could give, but there's there's a there's a point also about judging about what other people are doing that you're judging, that there's not an intrinsically right or wrong thing that you have to consider the context of what they're doing when you're making a judgment about them. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. And it, it's a simple way of holding what the difference is in terms of judgment and something Ayn Rand stresses that objectivism as a philosophy is urging one to judge. But if someone asks, like, why did you reach that judgment? You better have something to say about it. You better be able to articulate. This is the process that I went through and why I've reached the judgment that I reached. And the intrinsicist position in effect, it comes down to at some crucial point, it's I just know. And if you like, what is the process you went through? Oh, no, I just know that I just know that an extramarital affair is wrong. I just know that this baby has original sin. And you ask, like, how do you know this? And how does that make sense? I just know it. And that for Ayn Rand is the abdication of judgment. I think, by the way, this also answers a question that came in from YouTube, is moral judgment contextual? And the answer, for all the reasons we've just been discussing, is yes, it, it has to consider the context of the of the person's choice. What, what are the reasons that they had for the choice, not just what is the kind of intrinsic uh, characteristic of their action? Um, and just and since the reason that question is often asked is the foil is, is it contextual versus absolute? And Ayn Rand thinks that that's, that's not your choice, that you either have to mm -hmm. say it's contextual and therefore it's non-absolute or it's absolute and therefore it's not contextual. And this is like your the, the absolute and non-contextual would be extramarital affair is wrong, period. That's an absolute, it has no context. I can't give you any reason why. Her view is it's contextual and often your context leads to one and only one judgment and you're you have conclusive evidence and again if you think of a courtroom trial sometimes it's 
the court, it's the, the, if you think of a murder trial, the judge thinks the, the um, prosecution has not established this beyond a reasonable doubt. But sometimes it is. Yes, you've marshaled facts. This is beyond a reasonable doubt. It's contextual on all those facts, but the judgment is an absolute now, and that, that, that no other judgment uh, would be permitted. Let's do one more question, and I, I see a way to combine two more that came in, as they're both sort of on the, the flip side of the same issue. Uh, one person asked, what about forgiveness? So this is a case where somebody's done some really bad things in the past, and now they're trying to reform. And then another YouTube question that came, a super chat question that came in is, any concrete advice about how to judge the past work of someone who's now corrupt? So there's, there's a case where they've done good things in the past, but now for one reason or another, they're doing very bad things. Um, so what about forgiveness when someone's changed for the better? What about, and what kind of... Uh, deference do you make to the achievements of somebody in the past who's now doing something bad? On forgiveness, the crucial point in objectivism is that it has to be earned. So not that forgiveness is a sin. If you're to be just, you never forgive anything, but the forgiveness has to be earned. And it's the responsibility of someone who's done something wrong to earn it. And earn it means that the person demonstrates in an objective way that both they are sincerely uh, now think what they did was wrong and they've tried to make amends for it and to show that I have changed. And it's the easiest thing to just say, oh, sorry, and I've changed. It's so to demonstrate it is in significant part to demonstrate it through action. And there are, I think, situations, and indeed many situations, where you cannot objectively earn forgiveness. That is, from the other person's perspective, they don't have sufficient evidence to forgive you. That doesn't mean you can't change. It doesn't mean that from your perspective, you can say, like, I've really sincerely confronted that I've done something wrong. I've thought about why I did it wrong. I've tried to make amends and so on, but I understand that from that of the person or people I've wronged, they are not going to forgive me. They don't have grounds to forgive me. I can still view myself as I know, but I really have changed, but they don't have that and can't have that perspective on me. And it's understandable that they don't. And this is one of the ways it's put in the objectivist literature. This is often the price for doing something wrong that it's you should make amends for whom you've uh the innocent people you've harmed but there they will never be in a position to objectively say that you've earned forgiveness the idea i think ayn rand once uh, uh invoked this this the old saying god may forgive you but i won't even though she's an atheist of course uh and then what about the the dealing with the uh the person who's done great things in the past but has become corrupt how should we hey, think you want to take that uh sure so if 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 you really think they've become corrupt if if you've got the evidence for thinking that along the lines of what we've been talking about then that has to be the judgment now it it might be i would think that if um it, if you know a lot if you really know that what they did in the past was great uh, then that might 
that might uh, in effect raise the standards for what it's going to take to actually prove to you that they've become corrupt because you'll you'll be reading their current actions through the lens of what you know about their character in the past. But that doesn't strike me as a, any kind of, that's not a blank check. It's not that they've done these great things, therefore they can never do any wrong. It might raise the standards for realizing that they've become corrupt, but it's, but people become corrupt. And we talked earlier about Stadler and how uh, in effect Dagny was uh, giving him a lot of the benefit of the doubt and Reardon was, uh, quicker to realize that whatever he, good he did in the past, it doesn't excuse the things that he's done more recently. And as as I think we see in that character, uh, he, he is still capable of some some pretty awful things. I mean, he in effect wants to kill John Galt uh, because he himself has has developed this hatred of the good, and that's in spite of whatever good things he's done in the past. All right, so we should wrap up, and there were a lot of other questions that came in, uh, so please join us again. A reminder that uh, we will be on Clubhouse uh, in the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse right after this, so download the app, look up Ayn Rand Club, you'll find us there. Otherwise, I wanted to share with everyone some resources for learning more about some of the ideas that we've talked about today. First, we need to uh, talk about uh, some of Ayn Rand's own sources. Uh, here are three nonfiction essays that she wrote on the issue of moral judgment, which I think are consonant with some of the ideas we've talked about today. We talked a lot about her essay, How Does One Lead a Rational Life in an Irrational Society, which you can read directly on our website if you go to bit.ly slash rational hyphen life. Also, The Psychology of Psychologizing. That's at bit.ly slash psychologizing. And uh, The Cult of Moral Grayness, bit.ly slash moral gray. And of course, uh, we've been talking throughout today about the fiction and it, it really is important that uh, so many of these issues related to the importance of moral judgment are, they're actually part of the drama in her fiction, especially uh, in Atlas Shrugged. Uh, a couple of other things that you may want to look at if you want, especially if you're interested in, in some of the later things we talked about today, the, uh, what, what it means to judge ideas as good or evil. Uh, best place to look for that is Leonard Peikoff's uh, seminal essay, Fact and Value, which is on ARI's website at bit.ly slash LP hyphen FV. That's the one where he analyzes and critiques the ideas of David Kelly, we mentioned briefly earlier. Uh, though you should also take a look at his lecture, Judging, Feeling, and Not Being Moralistic, which is uh, a really good and useful practical advice on how to apply some of these principles of moral judgment in everyday life. Uh, and, and one of the things I remember particularly useful from this lecture is, is talking about the, the gradations in judgment that we, that we referred to earlier, that it's, it's not a binary, that there's, there's degrees of good, there's degrees of evil. And that one of the challenges of moral judgment is in recognizing the differences. Uh, okay, so that's uh, that's our list of resources. We also wanted to take a moment to remind everyone about how coming very soon is the Objectivist Conference in, this year in Washington, D.C. Uh, I think the hotel is uh, packed, so it might not be possible to come uh, and stay with us in person anymore, but we definitely have the virtual option, and uh, there will be a lot of talks on a whole array of issues of interest to objectivists uh, all of most of the speakers will be talking about uh, about uh, issues in philosophy and literature and 
economics. So uh, go to bit.ly slash Ocon2022 to learn more about how you can uh, attend at the very least uh, virtually. I think there, you might still be able to attend in person, which is not a, our, our hotel is booked. So uh, hope to see more of you there. Both Ankar and I will be giving talks. Ankar, you'll be speaking, I think, about the abortion, the forthcoming abortion decision. Yeah. I'll be talking about uh, the evil of altruism. Uh, something uh, that relates to what we discussed today. Uh, on that first topic, I should mention that our next episode of New Ideal Live is very likely to be on the topic of the Supreme Court's forthcoming abortion decision. It's looking more and more like it will be released within the next few days, perhaps as early as uh, tomorrow or Friday, perhaps as late as Tuesday. We're betting that that's going to happen, and so we're betting that the topic of our new Ideal Live on Wednesday will be the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion, uh, whatever it is. We have some clues already, uh, but we will be there to analyze the latest decision. We'll have read the decision and analyzed it for you. So please be there to see what we have to say. I'll close by saying if you enjoyed this podcast, please do what you can to follow us on social media. If, it's on, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Click that bell to get notifications when we go live. If you're watching the recording, Please leave comments. Please like this episode. Please share it with people. That helps maximize the algorithm to get more and more people attracted to our channel. Uh, likewise, if you're on Facebook, do the same kinds of things. Like, share, comment. Uh, and last of all, if you have questions or comments about anything that came up today or you have suggestions for future episodes, please consider just sending us an email, uh, newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in. We answer most of the questions that come in, though we don't always get to it right away. Uh, so uh, we look forward to seeing what you have to say there. That should wrap us up for the day. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Ankar. And we will, and we're we will see you all. We are we're moving to Clubhouse, so we will see you there shortly. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.